Hey, good morning, everyone. Thank you to our worship team. Uh, it's, it is so good to be led before the throne of God together in that way. Uh, and just to be reminded that our God has no rival. Our God has no equal. And that uh, because of that, he reigns now and forever. And that, that's a wonderful thing to be reminded of as we gather this morning. Uh, I hope you all had a wonderful and a very Merry Christmas and that you, you took some time to, uh, to celebrate the, the fact that Jesus came once and also to, to look ahead to the, the, the future where Jesus will come again, uh, where this, this glorious vision of, of him ruling and reigning, uh, we'll see him lifted high above all things, all powers, all, all sins and all failures will, will be gone. And we're going to follow that thread this morning. So if you would turn with me to Revelation 21, where we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. Again, that is Revelation 21, and then we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. And as you're turning there, I know that uh, it's that time of year where a lot of us are preoccupied with New Year's resolutions, right? What am I going to do this year to, to make myself feel better about myself or maybe just feel less bad about myself. That's, that's kind of how we, how we fall into this time of year sometimes. And uh, we, this, in this, uh, this season, this little uh, end of December, early January time, we start to envision a future where our willpower always holds up, where we have the personal resolve to meet all of our goals and all of our plans come true. And the end result is that we are just more optimized and, and actualized and satisfied versions of ourselves. And that is a tempting thought. That's a tantalizing thought. But I do think that it's kind of unrealistic if we're being honest with ourselves. Because you may keep a resolution or two. You may meet a goal or two. But that's not going to it's not going to save you. That's not going to, it's not going to change the, the underlying reality of, of your heart or the underlying reality of our world. And so what I want to do this morning is to take that thought of, of New Year's resolutions and to helpfully present a, a counterthought, uh, something for us to turn to uh, that, that shows us that there's something better than our own personal resolve, that there is something better than us trying to plan and map out the future exactly how we would have it to go. I want us to see that there is a renewal and a restoration that New Year's resolutions can never give us. They don't have the power to give us. Uh, our, our willpower, our resolve, our plans don't have the power to give us what we really need. Uh, what we do need comes from a very simple and, and yet earth-shattering proclamation. And the proclamation is this. It's that Jesus is Lord. It's that Jesus is victorious over sin and death. And that reality, more than anything that we would plan or envision for ourselves, that reality gives us more hope and more peace and, and more sustenance in the year ahead of us than any future that we could ever imagine, any, any goal that we could ever meet. And so we, as, as we approach God's word this morning, that's, that's what I want us to be considering. So let's look at verse 1, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we are in awe of your sovereign power, of your eternal plan. We're also in awe of your compassion for us. We thank you for the way that you put all of those attributes and and more on display through your word. Holy Spirit, as we look to the word, we ask that you would give us the the discernment, the wisdom that only you can give, that you would would help us to, to know, to understand the truth, but also to boldly apply that truth to our lives as we leave this place later today. And finally, Jesus, Son of God, we praise you, we lift up your name, we thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection, and we confess, we declare even now that you are the Alpha and the Omega, that you are the beginning and the end, that you are the one who gives living water from the spring of life without payment. And we thank you for that, and we pray in your name, amen. So we, we said that the victory and the lordship of Jesus are, are what truly lead us into a deeper joy and a more abundant kind of life than we can come by with our own strength. That's, that's what, kind of the, the, the theme of this passage and, and of the book of Revelation, really of the whole Bible. Um, but if that's true, we need to know how it's true. And if there ever was a people who needed to know that this message, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is victorious. There was ever a group of people who needed that message. It was the original audience of this passage, which was the the seven churches that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation to as a letter. And the reason that they needed this message of encouragement, literally uh, they needed to be made courageous by John's words that he passed along from his vision is that they were living under the brutal and oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. And this empire opposed 
Jesus' way of peace. It opposed Jesus' way of compassion. And instead, their way was the way of violence. Their, their way was, was the way of strength over everything else. And what that meant practically as you live day-to-day life is that anyone could commit any atrocity, Anyone could, could justify any wrong that they might do on a, on a grand scale or on a small scale, or anyone could, could take anything or anyone captive so long as they were the strongest or so long as they were the most intimidating. That is the kind of world that the early church was living in, and it was a world that was opposed to their view. It was a world that was opposed to their gospel. And so that meant that it felt like the world was held captive by darkness And it felt like sin was tarnishing and destroying things that God had intended to be good gifts for us. And that meant that day by day, they would have constantly witnessed uh, from the the lowest rungs of society all the way to the top in the highest places of their government and whatever else it may have been. They would have witnessed selfish thoughts, impure thoughts and, and motives bloom into destructive acts. And and those acts would ruin things, whether it was natural resources, whether it was uh, areas of the world, whether it was human creativity or personal relationships. This might might makes right philosophy that the Roman Empire had. It was destructive. And so because of all this, they were longing for the world to be made free by the world being made pure. And if any of that sounds kind of eerily familiar to how you feel sometimes about the way that things are going in the world, then the good news is that you can read these these words at the end of Revelation with the same hope and the same expectation, the same confidence that these people, these, these, these members of the early church did. So as we look at verses one through two, what do we see? In order to make the people of God courageous, God gives John a vision of the holy city descending from the new heaven to the new earth. And this is, this is a, a, a striking image. It's a startling image. But what does it mean? Well, it's the culmination of all of God's purifying work throughout all of history. This is what it looks like for everything to be made pure. It's the Lord guaranteeing that now and forever, for those who are in Christ... Everything will be made pure. That's what the vision of the holy city is about, that everything will be made pure. And how do we know that? Well, we have to look back to the Old Testament a little bit. If you think about the way things were in the Old Testament, you might remember that in those days, it was impurity that always infected the pure. It was always uncleanness that was transferred over to cleanness. And so if you uh, interacted or associated or touched Someone who was impure, whether uh, ritually impure or morally impure, their impurity, their uncleanness would transfer to you. And until you were purified again through all of their laws, through all of their rituals, you would be unable to be in fellowship with God the way that he intended. That's the way things worked. Impurity, uncleanness were transferred to purity. It seemed like impurity was what was winning out. And purity... Was, was just, uh, just holding off the darkness as, as best as it can. But with Christ and with the holy city, that is not the case. That's not the way that things are anymore. With Christ, instead of 
impurity being transferred to purity, tarnishing purity. It's actually Jesus' purity, Jesus' cleanliness, Jesus' perfection that is transferred to us. It's his purity that is transferred that covers up our impurity. And for proof of that, we have several things. First, we have the earthly ministry of Jesus, where over and over, his healing touch would cleanse people of of their ailments, of their ritual impurity, of their uncleanness, and and it it would take people who were compromised, people who were outcast, and put them back into fellowship with God and with God's people. So Jesus introduces this new paradigm where now, through him, purity covers up, purity defeats, purity spreads and, and, and ends impurity. But even those works, even his, his healing of lepers and paralytics, even his, his forgiving of tax collectors and, and prostitutes and all kinds of other works uh, that, that, he, that he did, even those were just a foretaste of the ultimate work of cleansing, the ultimate work of purification, which was his once and for all death on the cross. And it's on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross that the holy city can be inhabited by God's people, by everyone whose life is hidden, not in their own pedigree, not in their own ability, not in their own achievements, but in Christ. For everyone whose life is hidden in the righteousness, the purity, the cleanliness of Christ, they can inhabit the holy city. They can dwell with God. And it's on this basis that we see the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, coming to dwell with man. And what this means is that uh, when Christ purifies us, when Christ makes everything in the world pure, in the new heaven and the new earth, it doesn't just usher in this new era where God will tolerate us. This is not uh, God saying, okay, that's fine. You can have your borrowed cleanliness and we'll just kind of get through eternity together and it'll be uneasy. That is not what happens. Instead, this means that the Father, through the purifying work of Christ, joyfully embraces us as his own holy and beloved children. And he lives with us forever in a recreated world. That is what the purifying work of Christ does. That is what his death and his his everlasting life have accomplished for us and for everyone who would trust in the name of Jesus. And so we sang earlier about this desire for us to learn to abide with God, for for us to be drawn close to God and to know what it's like to walk step by step with him in the holy city this, this vision is the ultimate fulfillment of that hope. This is God drawing so close to us that we, that we live with him forever, physically, in person. This is our hope, that he who began this good work of purification in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But, but that is, that's not where Jesus stops. He is not content to leave us in a kind of warped neutrality because Jesus could purify us. He could could leave us where we were pure and therefore saved technically, but also still wounded, still weary, still still mourning the losses that we all uh, have or will deal with in this life on earth. 
But that's not how Jesus operates. Look at verse 4 with me. It says this. One of the sweetest verses in the Bible. Take this home with you if you don't hear anything else. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen. Remember, remember this, that Jesus actually came down and lived among us. And that he actually, as Isaiah says, he actually became acquainted with grief. He actually knew our sorrows. And he knew even more sorrows than many of us have. And so that's why every Christmas season we sing those words of, from O Holy Night where it says, He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. He knows our need and he cares for us, which means that he will not stop until he has wiped every tear from our eyes and made pain and mourning and sin and death a, a distant memory. That is what Jesus has come to do. And so for those who are in Christ, hear this, everything will be made pure and everyone will be made whole. Everything will be made pure and everyone, as a result of Christ, what Christ has done, will be made whole. Because the purifying work of Jesus, it doesn't just remove the stain until another stain pops up. That's what the, the old sacrificial system would do. Jesus is once and for all purifying work. It removes the source of the stain itself. Jesus' purifying work puts death to death. And that's why when we look in verse 4, John can make the astounding claim that death shall be no more. Do you understand how, how groundbreaking, how, how overwhelming that claim is that death would be no more? Throughout all of human history, death has been a constant ever since the garden. No one has escaped death until John says, if you're in Christ, there will come a day when death will be no more. And here's what this means. This means that despite your resolutions, despite uh, your longings, despite your best efforts, you and I will never get the life that we always dreamed of. Now, I know that sounds not good, but bear with me here. You will never get the life that you dreamed of. Why? Because Christ will give us and give all of creation a new life that is better than any other life we ever could have dreamed of. Amen? That is what Jesus has come to do. That is what his life and, de and death and resurrection have guaranteed. And in this new life, we will have unbroken and everlasting relationships with countless loved ones. We won't lose people anymore. And we will have the support and the energy and the resources that we've always needed and maybe lacked to do the work that God made us to do. We'll engage with our creativity. We'll have fun. We'll spend time with God. We'll spend time with one another, with, with none of the limitations, none of the None of, the, none of the downfalls that we experience now. And we'll never have to worry about disease. We'll never have to worry about poor health. We'll never have to worry about our bodies breaking down or our relationships with others 
breaking down. And that means that for all of eternity, we will be free to enjoy all that is ours in Christ Jesus. We are co-heirs of God in him. And that's what we'll enjoy for all of eternity. And that's that's why when we sing joy to the world every Christmas season, we sing he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. His blessings will flow as far as the curse is found, which is everywhere, by the way. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, This kind of renewal, this kind of of rebuilding, it hasn't always been available, and we're still waiting on it now. Uh, But in the past, before Christ came, there was even less perspective on what God's uh, work of redemption and purification would ultimately look like. And so uh, you don't have to turn there, but in the book of Ezra, in chapter 3, there's this really a heart-wrenching scene where the elders of the Israelites who had been in exile and they had seen the, the temple uh, ruined and they had, they had been sent off to a place that was far away from their home and then after decades they were finally brought back and uh, a foundation after years and years, a foundation for a new temple was laid. And in Ezra chapter 3, all of, these, all of these old timers in the nation of Israel, they get to see this new foundation. And many of them sang for joy. But if, you, if you've heard the story before, you, you will know that many others wept. They wept when they saw the new foundation. And the reason that they wept is that they, they, they saw immediately that the new temple, the, the foundation of this new house for the Lord to dwell in, was not going to be the same as the old one. They saw immediately that that former glory of the first temple was not available to them anymore. And that caused them to weep. It caused them to mourn. It caused them to, to long for something that they, that they knew, that, uh, a longing that God, that they knew that God had put in them, but that they, they, they probably wouldn't realize in their time on this earth. And so for them, the new temple that was being built, it was a source not of full restoration, but it was a source of consolation. And consolation is fine. Consolation can be, can be a good thing, but consolation doesn't make us whole. It may make us feel better, for a moment, but it doesn't make us whole. And what I want to tell you this morning is that the good news of the gospel is that eternity with Christ is not a consolation. It is not the Christian version of a bronze medal. This is, this is not the thing that we get to make up for the things that we lost. This is the life that we enjoy forever, a, a complete and joyful restoration of all that we were made to be all that we were meant to live in as God's people. Everything and everyone will be made whole. There won't be death or mourning anymore. And the joy that we'll experience then will even work backwards to give us perspective and joy about the times in this life where we experienced loss. Life with Christ is not a consolation. It is is the reward. And so if you were in Christ... When you see the holy city descending, you will not weep like the people of Israel did in Ezra 3. 
You won't weep because, as we read earlier, all of your tears will be wiped away. And so instead of mourning, you will sing. You will join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. And that's what we're looking forward to. But if you want to be there on that day, and I hope that you do, there's a cost. And so many of us, I'm sure, know this already. That there is a cost to being in Christ. And this cost has caused many people across history, whether it's people in the Bible or, or people that came before us or, or us today, it caused, uh, this cost of following Christ has caused many people across history who, who might have been joyfully converted to the way of Jesus to turn away in sorrow, to turn away in rebellion. And so we need to know what this cost is, and we need to know how to deal with the cost, and we need to know whether we're willing to take it on. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. This is the cost. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Uh, this is the double-edged sword of the Word of God. It fights for us, but in fighting for us, it also cuts us to the heart and exposes our sin, because that's what it means to be made whole by the Word of God. You first have to be cut up a little bit. You have to have the, the bad, the sin, cut out so that God can place something new inside. And so in verse 8, the one who is seated on the throne, the one who has made all of our wholeness and purification possible in the first place, he says it as clearly as you can say it. He says that you cannot have this life this new life, unless you lay down all the behaviors, all the habits that you once looked to for security and deliverance. Because that's what this list of vices and sins is. Let's, let's think about the common thread. It, this list, it's not, uh, not, not all the items in this list are the same level of consequence or the same level of severity. They're not all in the same category of behavior. And it's not that everyone on earth indulges in every single one of these sins. That's not the common thread. The common thread is that this is, is a, a sampler list for this first century context. This is, this is a group of behaviors and, and sins and vices that people would have turned toward for their own deliverance, for their own uh, absolution, for their own healing. They were trying to get something that they only could get from God through turning to these sins, through turning to whatever it was in this list. And the Lord says to every single sin mentioned here, and every single sin not mentioned here. He says it's not enough. No matter how much you do any of these, no matter how well you do any of these, or how poorly you do any of these, it'll never be enough. It won't work. It won't give you the new life that you know deep down that you were, you were meant, that you were created to have. God's telling us that we will only receive the eternal blessings of Jesus' lordship and Jesus' victory when we stop resolving in ourselves and start resting in him. That's why this list is there. 
And that's why when we look at verses 5 and 6, the Lord says this. Behold, I am making all things new. Making all things new. And then he says, it is done. He doesn't say cut that out and do something better. He doesn't say here's here's a list of things you can do to be worthy of the holy city. He says it is done. And he says, uh, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And then he says to the thirsty. And all of us are the thirsty. All of us know deep down that we crave a life that is better than this one, which has been tarnished by sin in so many ways. He says, to all who thirst, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I want want us to understand this. You can't just tighten up your act to get the new life that Christ gives. That's not what it's about. You won't find yourself in the heavenly city dwelling with God by keeping your resolutions or avoiding the the sins that you think uh, are, are, are what are really bringing you down. And your sins are bringing you down. But the deeper issue is that you're not turning to Christ. And the cost but also the prize of the gospel is that for everything to be made pure and for everyone to be made whole, everything will be made new. And everything must be made new. The newness, the renewal that God brings, it's an all-consuming renewal. And because it's an all-consuming renewal, it overwhelms our our, our illusions of willpower, our illusions of control over the future. This kind of renewal that God brings, it is so otherworldly and it's so glorious that it will only ever be obtained by those who approach the throne of God and say, not look at what I've done, look at all the things that I've not done. Don't Don't you think I've done a good job? That's not... What we'll, what we'll say if we want to receive this renewal. What we'll have to say instead is look at him. Look at the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at his life. Look at his death. Look at his resurrection. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland, he says it like this. He says, you are on the right side of history, not because of your resolve, but because of his resurrection. You are on the right side of history, not because of your resolve, but because of his resurrection. And so you are not meant to prove yourself worthy of the blessings of God. That is not what we're here to do. And in fact, if we continually reject the mercy of God in favor of our own striving, in favor of our own uh, trying trying to do it ourselves, trying to resolve to do better, if we continually reject God's mercy in favor of that kind of effort, that's actually the definition of hell. That's not the definition of heaven. The definition of heaven is that we receive God's mercy humbly. And we know that what Christ has done will will always be enough for us. And so if anyone is in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, he is a new creation. And you could also say that if anyone is in Christ, he must be a new creation. There is no other way. You must be made new. And so if anyone will drink from the spring of the water of life that we see in that verse earlier, then it will be without payment. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. Jesus has paid it all.
And as the band joins me on stage, that is hope for the year ahead of us. That's our hope. Not that we would finally live up to all of our goals as, as individuals or as a church or as families. Not that, not that we would do those things that we've always wanted to do. Our hope is that we would throw ourselves upon the loving kindness of Jesus and trust that everything in him is more than enough to make everything in us pure and whole and new. That's what the cry of our hearts has to be. We have to, to join that old hymn, Rock of Ages, which says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That must be the cry of our hearts. And when it is the cry of our hearts, we receive an answer. We receive an answer of mercy and compassion and renewal and an eternity with God dwelling with us. And so in the first century, the Apostle John, he wrote boldly from his own exile for preaching the, the message of Jesus. He wrote, wrote from his own exile, from his own place of weakness and powerlessness. He wrote to a group of people, seven churches, who were the poor and the powerless and the persecuted in the world, the ones who were opposed by what seemed to be the most powerful force in all the universe in their day. And he wrote to them with confidence, and he said, not just, hey, I think if you, if you do these things, you might be okay one day. No, he said to them that one day all of their suffering will be turned into joy and glory. And he said to them with confidence that their God would dwell with them for eternity, against all earthly odds that they could have known at that time. And they believed it. They weren't perfect, but they believed it. And the result, as they built their lives on that reality, was that the church, in the midst of persecution and calamity, was preserved. It was preserved, and then, as time went by, the church was advanced. And that brutal dictatorship around them, it fell away. And if, you, if you've read your history books, you might even know that that empire that had been so brutal, it became a Christian empire. And now that wasn't perfect either, but that's the point of, of what the gospel can do. The way that these early Christians received this promise and believed it and applied it to their lives, that was, that was not them being deceived by sentimentality. That was not uh, them being ripped off by a guy who was writing about something that would never come true. That was them being transformed, being made new by the one true and eternal reality that there is. That Jesus is Lord. That Jesus is victorious over sin and the grave. And if we believe in that same lordship, if we believe in that same victory, then the same outcome will be ours in him. Our lives will be preserved because they'll be hidden in Christ for all of eternity. And so my, my invitation to you is to believe this. My invitation to you is to, to really believe that this could come true. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day.
We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, for his life, his death, his resurrection. We ask that it would, um, the assurance that that brings would overwhelm our fears and that it would overwhelm all the, all the efforts we might put forth to make ourselves new. Lord, we know that you are the only one who truly makes us new, that you are the only one who can make us pure. You're the only one who can make us whole. And Lord, uh, we look and long for the day when all of this will be realized. We thank you for the way that we're, we're seeing your rule and your reign play out even now, that we can worship together and lift up the gospel. But we do long for the day when you'll come again and when all things will finally and fully be made right and be made new. That's our hope. We ask that you would keep that uh, as our hope as we proceed through this new year. We trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.